Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark 9, 30 through 42. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. All right. So, by a show of hands, and I know these are always dangerous questions, how many of you are earnestly pursuing mediocrity? How many of you this morning are prizing failure? Are you listening? I'm asking these as participatory questions. No, no one out here is pursuing mediocrity. No one out here uh, today is, is prizing failure. Huh, okay, well then we're all, I think, probably on the same page. Our passage today is about the subject of greatness, about what makes us great. And I think that the topic of greatness shows up here for several reasons, but for the sake of introducing this sermon, I believe that what's going on when the subject of greatness comes up is it is revealing something very core to our hearts. Why do we not want mediocrity? Why do we not want failure? Why in our hearts do we want greatness to be counted as good and better as successful. Why are these descriptions so important to us? I mean, certainly we can talk about how they make us feel good, about how they give us significance, about how we find meaning in in greatness and in success. We can talk about security. I mean, if you're the best person at your job, you're probably the last person to get laid off, right? So there's a sense of security that comes with, with greatness, But if I were to take all those terms I just gave you, significance, meaning, and security, and boiled it down to what seems to be the core of our drive and desire and need for greatness, 
and our, and our desire to be as far away from failure and mediocrity is this. In our world, greatness justifies us. Greatness justifies us. It is the easiest answer for us to say, why am I okay? Because I'm better. Because I'm good. Because I'm successful. Why am I okay? We fall back onto these topics of greatness. Every single one of us has in our heart that question, why am I okay? Am I okay? It wakes us up in the middle of the night. It bothers us in the middle of our week. Every time that we make a mistake, the question, am I okay, comes back, and it haunts us. And so we pursue greatness as a way to try and answer it. But here's the thing. We all must answer the question, why am I okay? And what is your answer? What is your answer that you are okay? Because as I look at all of the different things that we pursue for greatness, that we pursue for success, I don't find many things in this world that are anything but fleeting. What greatness can you claim in this world that's going to last, that's going to give real security? If you came to my house, and, and many of you have, have been to my house, and I hope the rest of you will at some point, you will find my uh, uh, poster of the 2015 World Series champion Kansas City Royals prominently displayed in my house. It says, World Champs. That was in 2015. Nobody talks about the Royals as world champs anymore. That is distant history. They are now back to failing. That greatness which made so much of a difference to uh, my uh, uh, town has become fleeting. We are back to the laughing stock. But you're pursuing greatness. You're pursuing an answer to why am I okay. And the question is, will your greatness last? When I was in high school, the, the activity that I was most invested in, spent my time in, made my identity about, was debate. I love debate. Perhaps you can still see uh, vestiges of it in me. But debate was my uh, place where I thrived, where I succeeded the most, where I experienced greatness. But here's something that one of my debate coaches told me. He said that everyone in debate loses their last round, except for one. You understand that? Every single person every year leaves as a loser except the one team that comes out as the winner. So most of what we are pursuing for greatness is only going to confirm, ultimately in the end, your loss, your insignificance, your failure. But when we look at today's passage, Jesus is going to provide a new way, a new understanding of greatness, an understanding of greatness that comes through the gospel, an understanding of greatness that comes through the kingdom. And it is a greatness that will not be fleeting. It is a greatness that will not be taken away. It is a greatness that will be secure because this greatness does not, is not the greatness that you pursue to justify you. 
It is the greatness that reflects the fact that you already are justified. And that makes an immense difference for what you live your life for and whether your life will be significant. As we look at this passage, we're going to see Jesus trying to explain the path of discipleship to these disciples that are still confused and still seeking a different vision of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be and what the Messiah is supposed to be. And in this passage, as these disciples are receiving correction about their vision of greatness, we are going to see in the gospel that there are three habits that come to us when the justification of the gospel is secure that will make us great in God's kingdom. So let us now look at these three habits that make one great in God's kingdom that come through finding our justification in the gospel. The first we see in verses 30 to 32 is this. The first habit is appreciating the gift of the gospel. The first habit that will make one great in the kingdom comes by appreciating the gift of the gospel. Let's look at verse 31 uh, again. Where's my, there we are. Verse 31, they said, uh, uh, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. This is the second time that Jesus has announced his passion, the, 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 sto- the story of him going to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and where he will suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And the disciples just absolutely are not getting it. They do not understand what this means because they are coming to Jesus with a worldly understanding of greatness. What are they coming? What are their expectations? Their worldly understanding of greatness is this. Justification is found in great titles. Justification is found in being important. You see, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, they are hearing one of the most exalted titles in the Old Testament for the Messiah. When they hear the word Son of Man, they are going back to the prophet Daniel, who tells us in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, these words... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The Son of Man is the one who will have a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, that shall not pass away. So when they hear Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, when Peter has come to him and confessed him as the Christ, this is the vision that they're seeing. The one that we've hitched our horse to is the Son of Man, the one who will never be destroyed. I mean, they're the luckiest entourage in the history of entourages, right? All of the glory of the Son of Man is going to be basked upon them because they're in that band with the Son of Man who can never be destroyed. Their justification is that they are close to the one with the supreme title. Their justification is grounded in being important. I am close to the Son of Man. And so... That's their security. 
That's their sense that everything will be okay because they are close to the one with the title. And is that not part of all of our lives? Are we not pursuing the title that makes us too big to fail? Do we not want the title that gives us security, that gives us significance, that that gives us the place where we'll be the last one out? We will survive? That's what's going on in the disciples' mind. But here's what Jesus is going to ultimately show them, that there is no justification at the top. There is no justification in titles. Titles disappoint. Titles fail. Titles get fired and taken away. The world champs are not the world champs anymore. And here is the thing, that if our justification comes by pursuing titles, we must come to reckoning with these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Here the preacher says, He who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Listen to those words again. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Beautiful, powerful, supreme, king of the jungle lion. But all lions die. And when the lion dies, even a lame, pathetic, mangy dog is better than the lion. You see what Ecclesiastes wants us to know? If you are pursuing greatness, if you are pursuing justification by titles and advancement and becoming most important, you have done nothing to take away the great equalizer, which is your death. Someday, you will be replaced. Someday you will not be here to continue with your greatness. And the ultimate end is this. You have no more reward, for even the memory of them is forgotten. How many of you could list the boss that was in your position five bosses ago? How many of us can go to a cemetery and know any of the people who are buried there? You see, we are going to be wiped away. Our significance is fleeting. The greatness of our titles, they don't last. There is no security in them. And so, the disciples have to learn not to hold on to justification by titles because there is a greatness that is secure that comes through the gospel, that comes through the kingdom And that is justification coming by divine gift. See, if we seek justification by titles, we will never be secure. But the gospel, the good news is that our justification is by divine gift. Look at those words again that Jesus says that he he will be delivered. The Son of Man, this most exalted one, will be delivered into the hands of men and killed. If our hope is in the the title, then what does it mean that even the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed? There can be no hope in the title. But what is the hope? 
Well, if you look at the, at the tense of verse 31, look at it at very carefully. We have uh, these words. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Is going to be delivered. Now, if you're an expert in English, you'll recognize that that is a passive tense. Delivered is in the passive tense. And what passive tense means is you don't know who the subject of the sentence is. Who is who's doing the action? Who is doing the delivering? In that sentence, it is a question mark. It's a mystery. And so the question that has to be grappled with as we look at it is, who's delivering the Son of Man into the hands of men? It's a poorly written sentence unless there is something that we are supposed to conclude about that passive tense. And very frequently in the New Testament, we discover, and in the Old Testament, that the passive tense is used to refer to divine action. And I think it is probably very sound to recognize divine action as, uh, in this verse because the Son of Man is being delivered where? Into the hands of men. That's a contrast. He's being delivered into the hands of men. That makes you ask the question, well, from where? From what? He is being de- delivered from the realm of heaven, from the realm of the divine, into the hands of men. That's what makes sense of that transference. But in that case, it's not the men that are bringing Jesus into, into their hands. He is being delivered into the hands of men. And so what we are being told here in this passage for those who listen carefully is that God is doing this. This isn't a tragedy. This isn't a plot hatched by men to destroy the Son of Man. This is something that God himself, the Father, has planned and determined. He delivers into the hands of men. Do you see what is happening here? It is the Son that is given that is going to justify us. This is made explicit when we when Paul t- talks about this event in Romans chapter 3. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfying sacrifice, as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. You see, what Jesus is saying is your justification pursuing greatness through titles will, will, will end nowhere. The justification you need is the justification that is going to be given by a gift. And how is that going to happen? It is going to happen by God delivering his beloved son into the hands of men to become an atoning sacrifice for the sinners of the world. A sacrifice that takes away your sins. A sacrifice that gives you complete forgiveness and peace with God. A sacrifice that completely satisfies and justifies you in the, in the court of God's righteousness. And a, a, a sacrifice that is given as a gift. Something that you do not call upon, something that you do not earn, something that you do not aspire to. It is brought down. It is given as a gift that you receive by faith alone. As you pursue titles that will never justify you, here's the amazing story of the gospel. 
the, the news that you need to justify you to be right and secure is given to you because Christ, the Son of Man, was delivered into the hands of men so that you could be saved, sanctified, so that you could be justified, so that you could be glorified. All of those are secure because of what God has done in this passage. He is delivering his Son. Because God gave his son, we are justified freely by faith alone. Now, I've said that in probably every sermon I've preached here. There isn't a sermon that I don't talk about the gospel, about the gift of Christ. So what is the habit that will move us towards greatness? What what do we have to understand about this? Well, if we look at verses 32, I think we're given the hint. Jesus just says this, but the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The disciples just allowed that news to go into the air and go nowhere. They did not ask a follow-up question. They did not want to talk about it. They did not dwell upon it. They didn't do anything with it. They just allowed this really awesome and strange and and. mentally defined statement to be said and dropped. Now, I I can make excuses for the disciples. They, They are at the very beginning of the gospel. They don't understand, and they're probably not even ready to understand. I mean, they have to see what's going to happen before they can understand it. They have to see the resurrection to make sense of all of it. So they are in a place of what I guess I would call some excusable ignorance. But not us. Not us. We know the whole story. We know what's going to happen. We know the significance. We have had the divine author through the inspiration of the apostles explain the free gift of the gospel that comes by faith alone, the justification that we have by doing nothing but by trusting in Christ. And so as the disciples did not understand and did not appreciate and were not prospered at this time by that news of the gospel, we recognize that we commit the same mistake. If we just listen to that word and we do not apply it and think about it and dwell upon it, and as the word that I have chosen, appreciate, appreciate that gospel. If we do not appreciate the gospel, that is going beyond just reciting it, saying what it is, giving the facts, appreciating it means dwelling upon it, recognizing it, understanding it, and being grateful for it. All of that is tied up in the word appreciate, and it's a dynamic term. You can appreciate more of it the more time you spend into it. Just like art appreciation, you start your class at art appreciation, and it's just a pretty picture, it's not a pretty picture. But then somebody explains to you what the theories and the philosophies and the reasoning for this color of paint and that color of paint and and the, the, the philosophy behind it. And then all of a sudden you can appreciate that art, which made no sense to you before. If we are going to experience greatness in the gospel, we have to take what has just been preached, that we are justified by faith alone because God gave his son to make us right with him. Because it is only through appreciating that gospel that we will increase in gratitude. 
And it is only when gratitude for the gospel grips our heart that we start living for the gospel, that the gospel becomes alive and determinative for what we do with our lives. It always worries me when when I ask for somebody's testimony and I get the story of the churches that they've been to, but I don't get the story of what Christ has done in their lives, how significant Christ is to them, what it means that someone died for their sins. I'm always wanting to hear, do you appreciate that you have been plucked from the fire, that you have been purchased from damnation, that you have been placed into the citizenship of heaven because of a free gift of Christ. And if we appreciate that, how does that not just absolutely shape what we say and do? Go back to Mark chapter 5, where Jesus expels an army of demons from this hopeless man who had been living in tombs. What did he do when Jesus, by his word, expelled that army of demons? He goes and wants to tell everybody, I once was a captive of demons, but now I am free. Look at me, I'm in my sane mind. I have been fixed by Jesus. I have been saved. And we are told that he goes through the whole Decapolis. He goes through dozens of different towns so that the news of Jesus just covers that area. You see, that's what happens when we appreciate the gospel. we got to share it. We've got to communicate it. We've got to speak it into people's lives. We want to hear it from others. When that habit takes hold of us, that we are justified by faith alone and the habit of appreciation takes hold of us, we cover the area with that news. And that, is greatness in the kingdom. Second habit that shows up when we grasp the gospel that makes us great in the kingdom is we begin living to serve others. We begin living to serve others. Now let's just look at verses 33 to 36 again. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, and we'll get to the next part later. But this is the scene. They're in a small house. Jesus asks the question, what were you talking about? And they share that they were talking about who was the greatest. I mean, I I think Mark wants us to, to be jostled here. Jesus just described that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The disciples don't really want to talk about that. But what they do want to talk about, what they're fascinated with, is which one of us is the best? Which one of us is greatest? Which one of us is top dog? I mean, does that not illustrate how uh, off they are in their understanding of the kingdom? Again, the disciples are revealing the, the worldly understanding of justification. And what is their understanding of justification? Their understanding of greatness is merits. 
merits. When they ask who is the greatest, they are looking at what what, uh, Thomas has done, what Peter has done, what John has done, what Judas, not Iscariot, has done, whatever. They're looking at each other and they're saying, well, you did good there, but you didn't do good there, so that probably makes me a little bit above you. And they're doing these comparisons. They're developing a list of merits to figure out where they stack. And they're doing this because their justification is so fragile when it comes to merits. So they're constantly doing this. We're going to go through this story again in a couple weeks. They're always talking about who is the greatest. They're always vying for a position. And it's because they're so fragile. I mean, just last week we saw the story of uh, three disciples go up the mountain and nine disciples go down. And so you can imagine they're saying, well, what meant that you got to go up? How come I didn't get to go up the mountain? What makes you better than me? So they're insecure about that. Why was I left at the bottom of the mountain? And then we have the whole story of the, 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 the child with the demon, that they failed utterly. So, I mean, they're very insecure. They weren't able to deliver a demon. Is, is, is Peter any better? Go back a couple chapters to Peter, chapter 8. He's called Satan. He's called Satan because he tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. They're very insecure as they're trying to look in themselves and evaluate their worth with Jesus. Is the one called Satan the greatest? I don't know. Is being called Satan worse than not being able to cast out a demon? I I don't know. They're entirely insecure as they compare merits. But this is the only way they know how to justify themselves. So they argue who is the greatest. Their greatness, their understanding comes from accomplishments, merits, qualities, But it's so unstable. I mean, if your sense of justification is that you've argued that you're okay, how much confidence do you have in that? One bad meal, one bad thing in your stomach will change the feelings you have about yourself. All of a sudden, you're not sure at all. It'll just take one email that's not nearly as uh, appreciative of you from your boss to make you say, well, what's going wrong now? That's very unstable to rest on our merits. And ultimately, it's self-centered. The entire understanding of your worth is looking in at yourself and focusing on yourself to the exclusion of others. So the more you pursue merits, the more you're accomplished in selfishness. That's a problem. Those don't seem to work together. And that's why Jesus wants to hear what they're talking about. Because he wants to explain to them that greatness does not come by arguing, by counting up our merits. Because our justification doesn't come there at all. And so he wants us to understand that our justification is not by our merits, but by unconditional love. And that is why he brings the most uh, surprising character into the story. He takes these disciples who have been on uh, all of these miraculous uh, journeys with Jesus, and he puts in front of them, he puts in his arms a child. A child. We don't know the name of the child. The child is young. The child is indescribable, except that we know it's a child. He puts this child in their midst. Why does he put a child in their midst in this conversation of greatness? 
Because the child, by any worldly merits, is the most unexceptional person in that room. But I bet you that child is the most secure person in that room. The most secure that they are okay, that they are loved of anyone in that room. That child's status in the home is without question in that child's mind. You see, Jesus brings a child because he wants them to see that it is the person that has no confidence in themselves but has all of their confidence instead in their parents that is the most secure, that lives not by their own merits but by the unconditional love of their home that is the one most justified in the room, the one least afraid of being cast aside. John Piper describes this example, I think, poignantly. He says, children may have all kinds of faults, but in a normal, healthy family, they trust their daddy to take care of them. They do not lie awake wondering where the next meal is coming from. They are both lowly and non-great by the standards of worldly acclaim, and they are happy, anxiety-free and confident that everything they need will be provided. We do not put children in charge of anything, but children are not bothered by any of that. They are content to be cared for by their parents. See, a child doesn't wonder about their justification in the family. They know their justification in the family comes because their parents unconditionally love them and approve of them and receive them. It's an entirely different understanding than merits. They're not great, but they're secure in the love of their parents. And look at where the child is. This is not an accident. The child is in his arms. Jesus brings the child and wraps his arms around him so that they would see what is the justification of the gospel. You are not loved by God, you are not approved by God because you've accomplished or, or because you have done X, Y, and Z or because you're more important or because of your merits. You are loved because he has chosen to wrap his arms around you. The knowledge of justification is that God has determined to decree you as righteous and beloved before him because of what he has done for you in Christ. And because of that, you are wrapped in the arms of God. And if that doesn't give you ultimate security, what will? That's where we are. John chapter 10 verse 28 has Jesus telling us this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are secure, we are great, not by our merits, but that we are wrapped in the arms of Christ who will not let us go, who loves us, whether we rocked it that day or whether we blew it that day. We are justified. We are great, because we, not because of, of how we present ourselves, but because Christ has clothed us in his robes of righteousness. We are uh, loved Not because we are lovable, but because we have been declared beloved. 
by God. And that is unconditional. So you see, when we grasp justification that comes from the unconditional love of God for his children, then that changes us entirely from me-centered to other-centered. I mean, if I am secure in the arms of God, if I am secure in the arms of Christ, I do not have to do one thing or the other to, to be justified. I am rich. I am secure. And how do we see that richness? How do we see that security? In generosity and in meekness. Because when you are truly secure in the gospel, you can be a servant of all. You can be last of all. Because you're not afraid of your position affecting your justification. And so when your justification sets you free, your greatness is about helping others and serving others. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That comes by grasping the unconditional love of God that is ours through our justification in the gospel. So the first habit was appreciating the gift of the gospel. The second habit is living to serve others. The third habit that comes out when we uh, learn to receive our justification through the gospel as opposed to pursuing it through greatness is this. The third habit is honoring Christ in every believer. The third habit that makes one great in God's kingdom is honoring Christ in every believer. Honoring Christ in every believer. Let's again look at at verses 36 to to 42. Uh, This child in his arms, Jesus said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So again, we see two clashing understandings of greatness in this passage. And we're going to see how gospel greatness that comes through justification changes how we understand and relate to one another. We go from comparing ourselves against each other to honoring Christ in every believer. So what what does the disciples show us about their understanding of justification, their understanding about greatness? It comes by excluding. Their justification comes by excluding. Here we see the Apostle John sharing a report that there's somebody out there uh, casting out demons but not following us. So shouldn't we stop that guy? Shouldn't we shut that guy down? Shouldn't we uh, get that guy out of the business because he's not, he's not part of the program? He's not one of us? He's not following us? You see, they were finding their justification by being the in-group. And they were making justification by 
pointing to reasons that that person is not in the in-group. They were choosing justification by excluding. Now, before we go too far, it is important to put at least a couple caveats here. The issue that we're dealing with here is not the issue of false teachers. It is uh, about the question of belonging in the body of Christ. There's a whole other topic about false teachers. False teachers are people who are not teaching the gospel. They're teaching against the gospel, and uh, they are to be excluded. But what we are dealing with here is just another person doing work in Christ's name and how we treat that person. Okay, there's a big difference. Does everybody understand? We're not dealing with the whole question of false teachers. So they are seeing someone out here. John is seeing someone being successful in in exercising demons. And you can imagine how painful this is to their ego because they had just failed exercising this demon in the, in the previous verses. And there's this no-name person out there who's exercising demons, casting out demons apparently with enough success that he's being talked about. And so they are feeling failure where this person is feeling success. And so the way they justify themselves is they say, well, he's not really one of us. That's why I don't have to worry about that. We should shut that person down. He was not following us. And so a lot of the times in the worldly way, we want to disqualify people who threaten our justification. We want to cast them out as not really true, not really close enough to the, to the truth or the, the, the real group. We make lines about spirituality, how you worship. We make lines about secondary doctrine, about what political party you're supposed to support, about various things about pedigree. How do you fit into this church? Is it the gospel or is it uh, in conformity to five, six, seven other things? These are sort of things that, that John is reflecting in his answer. And so what happens when these sorts of things are being used to justify us We start questioning the authenticity of the faith of other people simply because they express it differently. Or they do not come up in the exact same tradition that we're used to. But Jesus wants them to understand as he he shuts this whole idea of excluding that person down, that that is not where our justification comes from. Our justification does not come from what group we're on the inside of. Our justification comes from by Christ alone. Our justification comes by Christ alone. You see, what, we, what he wants uh, his disciples to understand is that the gospel makes each of us Christ's. Look at verse 37 again very carefully. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's the point of the gospel. When Christ has justified someone, has said, my blood covers you, that person is Christ. That person is to be understood as one of Christ. He is in his representatives. And it's no longer about worldly divisions. It's about whether or not he is in Christ. I think it is wonderful that our new members that have just joined the church, our congregation now has, a little bit to my chagrin, a Raiders fan, uh, I didn't think that uh, Raiders fans were part of the true church, but they are. They are. And so, God bless, right? Now, here's another one. 
We also have in our congregation, as a member, an Alabama fan. Yeah. But you know what? That's not the gospel. That's not how we pick who we associate with. Because Christ has picked an Alabama fan. And we love an Alabama fan. Christ picked a Raiders fan. And I have to love a Raiders fan. Because Christ justifies that person. And I cannot unjustify who Christ has justified. Because of their justification by Christ, we must see those who are in Christ as Christ sees them, as one Christ died for, as one Christ lives in. And so when it comes to recognizing the gospel, it changes how we associate. We associate with people not based on worldly standards, but on the fact that Christ has justified and made us one. As Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 wonderfully says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that means that we show the greatness of the gospel by welcoming those whom Christ has welcomed. And that breaks across all kinds of divisions, all kinds of exclusions, and it makes a body of people that is different than anywhere else in the world. Where Alabama fans and LSU fans eat in unity happens only here, right? Christ wants us to treasure every one of his people because he treasures every one of his people. So we experience our justification and the habit that shows us great in the kingdom is that we honor Christ in every believer. And that is why uh, Jesus gives us these two uh, admonitions at the end Every good thing that we do because someone is in Christ, Christ loves, it delights him. But everything we do to cause one who is in Christ to stumble and fall into sin, it, it engenders, it draws his great anger. It is better for a millstone to be wrapped around your neck than to take one of Jesus' people whom he died to save and claim for himself and draw them into sin. When we honor, when we have the gospel, we honor Christ in every believer and we want to protect every believer from the lostness of sin. So as we conclude, greatness in the kingdom comes by being grounded in the justification that we have received from Christ freely by grace. And it is that justification that allows us to pursue the greatness that comes from appreciating the gift of the gospel, from living to serve others, and from honoring Christ in every believer. My question to you as you think about your life right now is, will your greatness last? Will your greatness justify you? Will your greatness honor Christ at the last day? There's a, a, a famous story about a couple business travelers who were on a rush on a Friday evening to get to a flight to get home, and they're running through the concourse of a busy airport, and they're going to be late for their flight. That's the only way business people are. They're, they're racing to get to their flight because they have to get home. They want to get home to their families. They want to get home to their weekend. And in their rush, they knock over an apple cart 
that's in the, in the commons area, that's, that's the, a woman selling apples. And all of these apples just spill out, hundreds of apples all over the floor. And they make a huge mess. But what are they supposed to do? The plane is going to take off. They have to get home. They have to get home to their family. They have to get home to their weekend. They do not have time to stop and fix this. And so they rush on to get to their plane. Except one of them suddenly stops and recognizes that he has to do something different. And he comes back and he begins to help this woman gather up all of these apples. And in the process, he discovers the woman is blind. This is her business. And she has lost everything on the floor. And she is blind and she is helpless in this big mess and a mass of people. And so the man spends time gathering up all the apples, putting them back, trying to display them correctly. He recognizes that a lot of the apples have been damaged. So he takes out of his pocket $40 to pay for the the, the spoiled apples, and he says, I'm sorry, miss, I hope I did not ruin your day as he is about to leave. And the woman, who is blind, says to him, Mister, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? You see, the path of greatness would have gotten on the plane. The path of greatness would have gotten home for the weekend. But when we pursue kingdom greatness We stop and we become a servant of all and we become last of all. And when we do that, the world sees what they don't see anywhere else. They see Christ. And let me ask you this. What's greater than that? Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.